Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway. I'm Andrew Walworth. It is Friday, October 2nd, and the nation woke up to learn that President Trump and the First Lady have tested positive for the coronavirus. On Friday morning at 12.54 a.m., Trump tweeted out, Tonight, Flotus and I tested positive for COVID-19. We will begin our quarantine and recovery process immediately. We will get through this together. As of Friday morning, the vice president's office announced that Mike Pence has tested negative. We'll talk about the consequences for the campaign and for the country. And we'll also talk about a new study published in Real Clear Education concerning free speech on campus. It's based on a survey of 20,000 students enrolled at 55 colleges and says a lot about how students view their ability to speak out in the face of political correctness and the cancel culture. Joining me are some of my colleagues from Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, president and co-founder, Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief, and Nathan Harden, editor of Real Clear Education. Tom, let me start with you. The October surprise is already here. The president's physician has issued a statement saying that Trump and the first lady are, quote, well at this time. He says, rest assured, I expect the president to continue carrying out his duties without disruption while recovering. Uh, What do you make of this? What do you think it means for the campaign? It is hard to say how this is going to play out uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks. I mean, the most immediate impact, obviously, is it takes Donald Trump off the field and he's going to be stuck inside the White House now, sort of like Joe Biden in the basement, unable to travel. He was keeping a pretty rigorous schedule. He was flying all over the country, holding rallies, uh, not going to be able to do that anymore. He's going to be quarantined at the White House. He's going to do some fundraising things and some things over Zoom. I mean, we've got four weeks left in the campaign. And for half of that time, he's going to be on the sidelines. So a lot of that duty is going to fall to Mike Pence. He's got a debate coming up. So he's going to have to really, you know, sort of share the burden of of campaigning. And I'm sure the surrogates are all going to kick into action as well. Uh, the ones who haven't tested positive, like Ivanka and Jared's mothers. And then beyond that, you know, it, it obviously brings coronavirus back into the news in a, in a big, big way. And that is an issue that has been a sore spot for Donald Trump. And it is a, an issue that's of great concern to the American people, um, not as much as the economy, but, but you know, number two. So we'll see how that plays out. I mean, who knows? Is, will this engender sympathy for him? I guess that depends on how this plays out, how sick he gets, if he gets sick at all. We just don't – there's so many unknowns at this point, um, and so many different variables. I mean, the only thing you can say for certain is it, it's not positive for for Trump's campaign that he's going to be stuck at the White House for two weeks. So, Carl, at the presidential debate on Tuesday in Cleveland, and this is the quote that I'm sure will get quoted again and again. He said, "I don't wear masks like him," referring to Biden. Every time you see him, he's got a mask. He could be speaking 200 feet away from him. He shows up with the biggest mask I've ever seen. I mean, this cannot be a good look going forward for the president. Uh, well, it makes him look ridiculous, uh, Andy. And, you know, it, it raises all kinds of questions. We're just processing this. Um, as you pointed out, the October surprise certainly came early, the first the first day of October. Unless you were up late watching the Dodgers postgame show, you probably went to bed and missed it if you live on the East Coast. But, but what does it mean? So who got him sick? Well, the president s- suggested earlier in the evening uh, that it might have been Hope Hicks, his former um, press mouthpiece, because she, you know, they, she she got it and she got tested. And, he, and then he said earlier in the evening, you know, Melania and I are being tested. Well, the test came back. But you start to wonder all kinds of things. First of all, this debate, the Mike Pence debate, are we looking at a guy who may 
be serving the rest of this term? What if he goes into a ventilator? Are we going to invoke the 25th Amendment? It's a serious disease. It's killed 200,000 Americans. And Donald Trump is right in, you know, he's approaching the age group, mid-70s, where it starts to be very difficult for people. You know, you start to think about other things too. That scene in the Rose Garden with Amy Coney Barrett and her family, did did Trump infect one of them? Did he infect the future justice? Uh, Tom mentioned there might be sympathy. I think there's many more questions than sympathy. And and you start to think about it, you think the president was careless. I think just for, I read, and I have not confirmed this independently, but I read that Amy Coney Barrett and her husband both had coronavirus earlier in the year, so should be immune. Mm. Uh, but nevertheless, he has been in a number of states and uh, and all around, uh, you know, folks, obviously the vice president and his wife tested negative. He will be able to continue carrying on his duties, but, but there are questions about how many folks are going to end up testing positive. So Nathan, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. At this point, everyone was focused on sort of two aspects of the campaign in those critical swing states, which is turning out the base and convincing those few undecided voters to vote uh, your way. Those are sort of the focuses right now. Do you think this affects either of those? As, as uh, Tom suggested, perhaps it invokes some sympathy for the president. At the same time, as Carl says, Carl's words, not mine. Carl thinks it makes him look ridiculous. Well, if I was writing you know, the novel that was the 2020 campaign, Donald Trump would have inadvertently transmitted the virus to Joe Biden at the, at the debate on Tuesday. And that would be the sort of upping the ante of the Greek drama of the campaign. I feel like at this point, it, it's such an abnormal candidacy and campaign that it's hard to see how this virus affects the public or, or does it affect the public. You know, if he, if he recovers or doesn't have sort of much of a reaction, maybe he used to that to say, hey, you know, I've been telling you all along, this wasn't a big deal. Uh, you know, if, if he has a severe reaction, if he's knocked out of the campaign for a month, you know, that's got to hurt him. So, Carl, I looked this morning at the CDC guidelines just to refresh myself on what happens for those who test positive. And this is for people who have symptoms or don't have symptoms. It says, stay in a separate room from other household members, use a separate bathroom, avoid contact with members of the household and pets, don't share personal household items, and wear a mask. You mentioned uh, the 25th Amendment, um, which is been invoked only, I think Bush was the last one to invoke it, right? When he was having some sort of medical procedure. At the base level, does this affect the president's ability to do his job? Well, you know, we've got technology now and we're we're reaching all these um, listeners right now and none of us are in the same place. So I, I didn't mean it in that way, but I, I mean, if the president gets very sick and I hope he doesn't. And when I said he looks ridiculous, I, I don't mean he looks ridiculous for getting the virus. He looks ridiculous for making fun of Joe Biden for wearing a mask. Biden's been very cautious and Trump's been contemptuous of that. You know, he called him Sleepy Joe. He said other things, but he's implied that Biden is afraid to go out into crowds. This news makes that decision by the former vice president look prudent. That's the point I'm making. And, you know, look, any of us could get it, Andy. There are people who are the people, the never Trumpers and the Democrats, there are people who are happy he has this. I, I'm not one of them. I you know, I hope he recovers. But I, I just think that, you know, he's been all over the place on this virus. You know, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Uh, China's at fault. You know, China's doing good. He's never had a disciplined approach to it. And I think a lot of 
voters are going to see this as a metaphor for his approach to winging it on this issue. Tom, does this take the focus off some of the gaffes or what people perceived as gaffes from the debate on Tuesday night? I'm thinking in particular about his remark about white supremacist groups, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, given the amount of coverage that this has gotten just today, and I suspect will continue to get, I mean, it's all anyone's talking about. And I suspect it'll be that way for the foreseeable future as we get you know, more announcements. The president's apparently, they're talking about him addressing the nation via video somehow. There are going to be statements from the chief staff and others. So I suspect this is going to be the story moving forward until it isn't. I mean, I honestly think uh, that you know, this is an October surprise. It happened just, you know, 24 hours after the, the first day of October. But I suspect there are a couple of more surprises in store for us over the course of the next four weeks. But I, yeah, this is going to be the focus based on what I've seen so far for the next few days. And to the extent that, that all of the news is focused on the virus and the president getting this and transmissions and all that stuff, it's probably not a net positive for him. But again, that's that's just speculation. We don't know how people are going to process this, um, particularly voters in, in these swing states. We'll just have to wait and see. Andy, Tom makes an interesting point though. This So this happens, what, 1243? Is that is that the right time for the tweet? So the 1256, uh, I think. Yeah, 12, well, so yeah, no, actually less, so less than less than an hour after the end of the first day of October. Tom's point's well taken. It happens so early in October, we could have another October surprise, a second or, or a third October surprise. <laughs> Tom, you mentioned the swing states, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona. Those are the ones that Real Clear Politics is sort of identified and focused on. With or without the coronavirus, what's going on in the swing states? Because that is the most important thing in terms of who's going to win this thing. Yeah. I mean, the president uh, is trailing in all six of those states, uh, including a couple of others uh, like Ohio. Um, and even I think I was pretty close. North Carolina is the closest. He's down half a point in our average. He's down a point in Florida. He's down three points in Arizona. And then if you go up to the upper Midwest, he's down over five points in all three of those states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. So I think the campaign feels best about his chances in North Carolina and Florida and even Arizona. And if you say that he holds all of those states uh, from from 2016 and he wins Ohio and Iowa, then he, he really just needs to win one of those three upper Midwest states. He can lose two of the three and still win the presidency. Um, well, well mean, wait a minute, wait a minute, Tom. But he's trailing in Ohio. There's no reason to think that that's in his camp. Well, that's a state he won by nine points in in 2016, Carl. Well, and I think well, he's, that, well, he's down three there <clears throat> now, according I, to our average. I understand that, and and in fact, uh, it, that state is going to be competitive. Georgia's going to be competitive. The last poll that came out there showed Biden ahead. Uh, by two points. But I think that, look, if he loses Ohio, if he loses Georgia, I mean, it's over. He's going to lose in a landslide. He's not going to, he's not going to win all these other states. So, well, I'm not um, trying to be provocative here. I'm going by our own website. We have it as a toss up, Ohio. Oh, I'm just going to say that, you know, I hear so many people who lack confidence in the polls that are out right now, just, you know, whether it's other people in the media, people on, on Twitter, just no matter what the polls say, you know, they're like, well, I, Either they're terrified that Trump is going to be elected or they're uh, sure he will be and hope he will be. So these close states, you know, that feel like they could go either way. I don't know how much confidence uh, to put in these polls at this point. You know, are people even being honest with the pollsters? (laughs) I hear people saying that. Um, 
know, people secretly support Trump, but they won't tell a pollster. Well, I've been reading a lot about that, and, and uh, Tom, correct me if you disagree, but I, I think the secret, the shy Trump voter is largely a, largely a myth. I, the polls last time weren't bad. The analysis by the commentators was pretty bad. None, none of them could get their minds around it. But, you know, we were looking, our poll averages, we had, you know, it closed, it was closing in Pennsylvania, and uh, Hillary Clinton's lead had shrunk to below two. Uh, this is four years ago in Pennsylvania. What that told you is that that thing was going to be a dead heat, which it nearly was. She, you know, she was essentially the, the incumbent. And there's there's some slippage in polls, some, sometimes for Democrats, often for incumbents. And, and she was essentially both. Look, at Real Clear Politics, we, we've got this poll average. It usually holds up. The point I was making to Tom is we talk about the toss-up states from last time. But there could be there are more toss-up states. There are more swing states, it seems to me, this time than there were four years ago. You, do you agree, Tom? Or yeah, I do, and yeah, yeah. and some of those are you know like Texas and and Georgia and Ohio and Iowa are Trump states, and then you've got you know place like Nevada, which we have as a toss up, which is a, a state that Hillary Clinton won in twenty sixteen. Look, just as a just as a thought experiment, last uh, earlier this week, I went back and looked at how Donald Trump performed or overperformed versus the actual, our final pre-election polls, our final pre-election averages in a lot of these states. And he overperformed, for example, in Florida by one percentage point. Uh, He overperformed the final polls in North Carolina by 2.7, 3.7 in Michigan, 2.6 in Pennsylvania, 7.2 in Wisconsin. That was sort of the big miss uh, in terms of, you know, the final election polls. Ohio, he overperformed by about four and a half and Iowa by, by six and a half points. For the sake of argument, assume that he's going to overperform by the same amount in those same states. Now, I'm not saying he will. I'm just saying if you just use that as a baseline, just for the sake of argument, he would still lose Arizona. He would lose Florida by one tenth of one percent, according to where our averages are right now. Holy hanging Chad, Batman! Yeah, exactly. He'd win North Carolina. He would still he would lose Michigan, uh, lose Pennsylvania. He would win Wisconsin, and he'd win Ohio and Iowa. So that would lead you to something like a 310 Biden electoral victory. And then if you if you even say, well, Florida's so close, let's just give that to Trump, it still wouldn't get him where he needs to go. It would not get him to a victory. Biden would still win, I think, with like 281 or something like that. So I think, look, if the election held today, Trump is behind. He was, he's the underdog uh, to win, but still a month left. And I think there's still some variability in, in some of these swing states. The numbers have been pretty remarkably stable over time, but it wouldn't take a, a whole lot of movement uh, to suddenly put put this race you know, sort of right back in a, in a 50-50 almost situation. So we'll see. Well, uh, I want to turn now to uh, this uh, education report. Nathan, let's talk about this. How was the uh, survey done and what did we learn? Yeah, thanks, Andy. You know, this is, first of all, the largest survey of students on the topic of free speech ever conducted nearly 20,000 students across 55 campuses. Uh, so we're getting a, a, there's been a lot of, you know, polls and surveys done on this topic over the years, but never at this granular level where we can actually make, we have enough data to make distinctions between one university and another. So it's an exciting chance for people who are interested in this issue to, whether you're a parent, whether you're a student, uh, you know, applying to college, and, uh, you know, concerned al- alumni, whatever it is, you can get in and actually see, wow, you know, how does my school stack up 
in the areas of academic freedom, free speech, compared to you know competitive schools. And and overall, what is your take on sort of the state of free speech on college campuses? Well, you know, I think we all know this is certainly an issue that's been in the news. We hear about guest speakers being shouted down on campuses or just a general sense out there that there's less freedom to express diverse views or unpopular views on campus. I think this is this is helpful in that it gives us some real numbers to look at in a concrete way. You know, one of those that we that we point out in the in the survey is that 60% of students uh, across our survey say that they have that they report self-censoring uh, at some point. And it also tells us something about the specific issues that students find most difficult to bring up. You know, abortion, racial issues, gun control, those sort of hot button issues are 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 high on the list. I think one of the real surprising angles was that we we found almost one in five students in the survey felt that it would be appropriate in some instances to use violence to stop unwanted speech. And that that was kind of a little eye-opening for me, a little shocking. But, you know, I read a, a result from a, uh, from a poll that YouGov did that just came out yesterday. And they asked a similar question just of the American public in general. They said, uh, would you feel justified in using violence to achieve a political goal? And they said, you know, they had a range of responses from, would that never be okay? Or is it, are you, you know, a little okay with it, uh, et cetera. And, you know, just three years ago, uh, this is in November 2017, only 8% of people said it would even be a little bit okay to use violence to achieve political goals. That number now is over 33%. <laughs> So we're talking about a huge change in people's, just in the American public in general. I I frame it in that sense to say that what we're seeing on college campus is reflective of a general, you know, increasing polarization, a coarsening of the discourse, and and a comfort in using, you know, aggressive or even violent tactics to silence the opposition. Nathan, this is Carl. I was struck by your piece, which we ran, by the way, on Tuesday, September 29th. If you want to see Nathan's story or the poll, uh, or the survey, uh, just go to realclearpolitics.com. It's free and just go back to Tuesday. You'll, it's easy to find. I'm, I'm looking at it now. But the, the most striking finding in that survey to me was that the conservatives tend to think that you know, students are going to college and they're being proselytized by Marxist professors and taught intolerance. But this survey suggests that it's it may be move, that the intolerance may be bumbling up from the students and it may be going yeah. the other way around. And you quote Jonathan Haidt, a professor at New York, New York University, who's not a conservative, who says this, at my university, we have a bias response line. Students are encouraged to anonymously report anyone who says anything that offends them. So as a professor, I no longer take risks. I must teach to the most easily offended student in the class. I therefore avoid saying or doing anything provocative. My classes are less fun and engaging, end quote. It's, it's more than just less fun and engaging. By default, almost, critical race theory is sort of the law of the land on these campuses. And you can't, it's not a free exchange of ideas. It's, a, it's an environment in which people feel that they're being spied on and tricked into if they say anything that's not the party line. But the party line comes from the, the students, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, we hear this over and over that professors are generally open 
you know, to the idea of free speech or academic freedom, they, you know, diverse views being aired out in the classroom. But it is oftentimes students' peers are the, that the fear of the response uh, from their peers that uh, causes the problem. So the number one issue, I think, is self-censorship. In other words, it's not a professor saying, you know, thou shalt not uh, speak in my presence. It's a student who just feels afraid of what his friends <laughs> are going to think of him if he voices a, an unpopular idea. And we see clear distinctions between the schools. So clearly there is something about, for instance, University of Chicago, which comes out number one uh, on the rankings for college free speech uh, that we just completed. They're clearly doing something to communicate their value of you know, open inquiry and academic freedom to their students that other schools that come in at the bottom and score significantly lower on our, on our rankings aren't doing. So, yes, this is a pervasive cultural problem, but I think one of the optimistic uh, takeaways from the rankings is that, you know, academic administrators, academic leaders um, who are committed to the principles of free, uh, free speech and open inquiry, they can make a real difference in cultivating that climate on campus. And students are clearly picking up on that in, in, on those campuses where that's the case. Nathan, this is Tom. So I, I have to draw your attention to my alma mater, Princeton University, ranked number 29 overall. Um, <clears throat> Squarely in the and, middle of the pack, Tom. And it was, which is actually kind of surprising to me, and I want you to explain that because Princeton's obviously been in the news uh, on this issue uh, not too long ago. You had a professor, Joshua Katz, write his uh, letter, his Declaration of Independence. Got him in a whole lot of trouble with the faculty. Um, and then more recently, you had the Department of Education take Princeton up on its uh, its suggestion that it's racist and there's systemic racism at the university and et cetera, et cetera. But what I noticed during you know when I look at these rankings that Princeton is the first is the first school on these rankings to have a red uh, speech code. Mm. Um, all the all the schools above it are yellow. So explain a little bit to our listeners. What dictates whether a speech code is green, yellow, or red? The speech codes here are are produced by the Foundation for Individual Individual Rights in Education, better known as FIRE among people who who follow this issue. They're they're sort of one of the leading advocacy organizations for free speech on campus, and they have a team of attorneys and experts who basically uh, examine the speech policies you know, that are written in the sort of the student manual of all these schools. And they're, they're really rated according to um, what's on paper. You know, what are the actual speech codes or speech policies in place? And that, that actually makes up a relatively small part of our rankings. The, the vast majority of these rankings are based on the students, uh, what they students told us about how they feel about the speech climate on campus. Uh, but the fire rating does way into it. Um, you know, what's interesting about Princeton, you know, they're one of the schools that, if, if I'm not mistaken, has signed on to the famous Chicago statement supporting free speech on campus. This is a, this is a sort of uh, declaration for free speech on campus that was developed at the University of Chicago and dozens of other schools have signed on to it. Um, but I think if you look at this, take a step back, you know, we this the rate the rankings are based on a scale of zero to one hundred, 
And the University of Chicago won the top spot with a score just over 64, which if you were grading this, you know. That's an F, Nathan. Like an F, you know, <laughs> so all of these schools have a lot of room for improvement. Um, and, and nobody can sort of plant their flag and say, hey, you know, we've arrived. What well, we're clearly it, it, showing is that some have more work to do than others. And Princeton is one of them. And to that point, I mean, the thing that jumps out at the University of Chicago is the administration support is 91.6, which is like 20 or 25 points higher than than any other school on the list. And, you know, Charles Lipson, uh, who's a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, he's a contributor to Rokler Politics and and a frequent guest on my radio show, uh, was part of the effort uh, to craft that statement. And, and there has been a real concerted effort among the administration there and the faculty to make sure that they they do sort of plant a flag for free speech and and that they, they have been leading uh, from the top. One of the great things that commends University of Chicago is they're in terms of student self identification, they're one of the most liberal uh, schools on our survey. I think they're fourth most uh, you know uh, weighted in terms of students who who identify as liberal versus conservative. Yet both. Liberals and conservative students there rate the school very highly or relatively highly in the area of free speech. So even conservatives who go there and they're they're vastly outnumbered, they feel like it's an environment where relative to other schools, you know, their views are, are they're free to express their their views. And that that says a lot about the intentionality of the administration there with the Chicago statement and other efforts they've taken. So I'm curious, I mean, this gives us sort of a snapshot, but uh, it doesn't really give us a linear view. It doesn't tell us whether things are getting better or worse or where schools are moving within this ranking. But that would be an interesting thing. I mean, are there plans to sort of continue this, make this an annual uh, study? It's so potentially useful to parents and students. I mean, I've got three kids in college, and this was a concern of mine in every school that they that they were looking at. You know, it's an important part of the decision-making. should be as important as anything else. Is there a possibility of turning this into something annual or making it a rating so that so that we can sort of keep track of, of who's getting better and who's getting worse? Yes, right now the, uh, the plan is both to uh, update the survey uh, year over year and also to expand the number of schools that are included. So we only have 55 universities, which is just a small slice. It doesn't give you the, the full picture of every school that you or your, you know, your student who's looking at uh, going to college might be interested in. But there's a good chance that you know one or two of them will be on this list, uh, no matter where you live and no matter what part of the country. So we hope that we can expand it. This is an, uh, this is a way for also for college administrators to look at okay, where do we stack up? Where can we improve? You know, do we have a, a speech code problem, for instance, at Princeton? What can we do to, to change that? And hopefully it creates a kind of a positive incentive uh, in the direction of academic freedom for these schools that, that are on the list. Carl, do, does it make you, uh, <laughs> how optimistic are you about the ability to sort of turn this around? Well, you know, I, I, as I was hearing Nathan talk, Andy, I was thinking, University of Chicago ought to market this. You know, can you imagine this? Okay. Um, our campus is in a dangerous part of town. Uh, we have no football team, and the, tu- <laughs> and the tuition is obscenely high. But if you come here, you still get your First Amendment rights. They they stay with you for four years. I think maybe Chicago ought to. I think these schools ought to actually market it and see what happens. Then you'd see a change. <laughs> well, I think uh, 
we're going to have to leave it there. This has been a heck of a week. Uh, really thank you guys for joining us today. So this has been the Real Clear Politics uh, Takeaway for Friday, October 2nd. I want to thank Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, and uh, Nathan Harden for joining me today. And you can find out more on realclearpolitics.com, including this uh, survey that we've been talking about of free speech on college campuses. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.